I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to The Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday. Happy, is it Women's Month? Women's History Month? Women's something? I think it is Women's History Month and this should come out on the 8th, which is, right? Yeah, International Women's Day. Ah, International. I stole you. <laughs> you stole it from me. I was looking at you just to make sure you would be like, Brittany, this is coming out in two weeks, not one week. Pay attention to our recording schedule. Uh, no, this comes out on the 8th. You're right. All right. So happy International Women's Day. Do you, do you have anything planned to celebrate your womanhood? Well, you know, I haven't talked about this um, yet, but I have my first virtual gala the next day. Oh, how fun. <laughs> so um, I think I'm going to spend most of International Women's Day stressing about the day after International Women's Day. Understandable. Yep. Yes. Yes. Um, what about you? Do you have plans? Um, gosh, let's see. It's a Monday. So no, absolutely not. <laughs> and Women's History Month, is that new? I don't think so. Um, because I've gone to Women's History Month events. I've got a book. I think it's called Her Story. And the mm-hmm. writer was in town probably a decade ago. And I went to the, the reading and signing and all of that. Which is kind of fun. So yeah, I think it's been around for a while. I, I have no information, no data to back anything up right now. I feel so horrible because I work for a women's empowerment agency and a lot of my career has been working for such types of agencies. Um, and yet somebody brought it up the other day and that was the first time I'd ever heard it. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's been around, it's not. it doesn't have the right marketing team. That that's most certainly accurate. So, well, I hope everybody does take. I'm just going to jump on my uh, women's empowerment soapbox that I have sitting here handy right next to me, and say that I hope everybody does take an opportunity this month to really look at our history and how much of it is told from uh, the male perspective and truly, really, the white male perspective, and how much we don't know about women in history. So I. Look, I'm going to put in a plug uh, for these books that I've been giving, and I gave them to a lot of my friends' kids who have um, daughters, but really you can buy them for your sons too, for anybody, is uh, these short bedtime stories of rebel women, which I love. Those are really fun. And so they're just super easy to read one page, and we read one every night before we go to bed. And now they've come out, they have um, two different... Uh, volumes of it and then they've come out now with uh, rebel stories of immigrant women oh cool I know so um, slowly but surely trying to teach my daughters um, all the history about you know amazing women that have shaped our history that I didn't get when I was their age Mm -hmm. speaking of not knowing about holidays and months and such um, I didn't realize till this morning that today, we're recording this on March 1st, uh, is um, Disabil- Disability Day of Mourning. 
Oh, I yeah. didn't know that either. It sounds like specifically it was meant to be about the, the children with disabilities who were killed by their parents, but it has now expanded into Whoa. folks with disabilities who have um, who have died or been killed. And I think especially this year when we've seen those numbers really increase with COVID and the lack of um, resources put forth to those with, with disabilities. Absolutely. Well, especially when um, so many of those kids and people with disabilities, their their families are relying on school or someplace for them to go during the day and not having that this last year, I'm sure, has um, has been the conversation with a lot of vulnerable children not having a safety net of being able to go somewhere during the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, shout out to my Twitter feed for letting me know that this day existed. Um, cause I, I was not familiar, but, um, for those of you who are also just hearing about it for the first time, I'll include some links in the show notes. Um, I saw a few really great memorials and listing of folks who had died in the past year and, um, an important day for us to all take a, a moment to recognize. And that did give me a second to look up, um, Women's History Month. That has actually been a thing since 1987. <laughs> <laughs> I am thoroughly embarrassed. Like you said, it's their marketing team. Well, yeah. And like, why the hell don't I know that? Like, why? Why is that not talked about? I don't know. Don't know. Anyways. We digress. As always. <laughs> this wouldn't be an episode of the nonprofit reframe otherwise. Uh, I always like to think about that listener who wrote in. I'm going to keep bringing it up. He was like, you know, I started listening to your podcast. And I was like, are they really going to ever talk about anything that has to do with <laughs> nonprofits? But then you did, and it was so great. And I'm, I was like, is that kind of like a backhanded compliment? Like, you talk too much, but when you stay on topic, you're really it's helpful. <laughs> that reminded me, though, of a moment of, like, pop culture nonprofit collision. Um, and I even wrote it down on a sticky note to talk about on the pod this week. So my husband and I have been watching this TV show called The Nick. Nick with a K, short for Knickerbocker. And so it's set in the early 20th century at the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York. Have you heard of this? Have not. Um, so Clive Owen is the lead character. Um, I think it's probably five or six years old, um, but it just got picked up on HBO, which is how we're now watching it. And so for those of you who uh, don't deal well with blood and gore, do not watch it. Oh. I, I spend a lot of the episodes under a blanket. But the story's great. Um, Looking between your fingers as you're covering your face. Tell me when he's pushed the hernia back in. Oh, God. Okay. But um, it's both fascinating from a medical standpoint when it's like everything was so experimental. Um, And so there was this piece of like, yeah, you might die, but we know you're going to die if we don't try something. So we're going to try something. And and maybe if you do die, we learn not to do that for someone else. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, ends justify the means. But the fascinating part for me, which my husband is probably getting really annoyed with me, like pausing and adding context to, is the funding side of things. So the the story follows this prominent family 
um, that is like the main donor to the hospital mm. to the point where like the the patriarch of the family is the board chair. His children sometimes step in for him, but they end up directing a lot of the fa- the hospital's operations and of course. use their donations to, to back that up. Yes, we want this electrified. So we are going to make that happen, even though the doctors are like, we don't know how electricity is going to play into things. We're not ready for that. But the donors are pushing it forward. Um, And in last night's episode, they had their gala. Oh. And I got to say, besides the outfits, like the gorgeous costumes they're wearing, it looked like any other gala I've been to. Well, and this is set in what era? This is like 1902. Yeah, and if you're doing a themed gala, maybe the even the costumes look the same. Yeah. It was fascinating. And how, like, overtly they move their money around, like, oh, this person, you know, the Carnegies are funding this hospital, so I'm going to fund this hospital at an equal amount to, like, keep my right. social capital going. Right. Um, and there were no qualms about pushing programs where they need to be. And also just fascinating level of like racism through the whole show. So Yeah. I was gonna ask how many people of color were at the gala. Well, that's the funny thing. Like they have one doctor, uh one black doctor, and his like continual striving to be seen, and then he gets invited to the gala by this donor, but the other doctors don't necessarily want him there. It's a whole thing. Ugh. So you're seeing kind of this portrayal of how all these systems that we still utilize today were created yeah, decades and decades ago, a century, more than a century ago, um, and yet we're still utilizing them. That was the funny thing. Like, you're watching these medical techniques and know how massively far we've come. Like, at that, there's one whole episode where they're, like, discovering adrenaline. Interesting. And so, obviously, we've made huge advancements. But then, like, there's a scene where it's the gala planning committee. They're having the same fucking discussions as every committee (laughs) meeting I've ever been to about a gala. How is that the same? We don't want just another rubber chicken dinner. What can we have that people are going to like that seems fancy? Or do do we match the napkins to the flowers or the flowers to the napkins? Which one do we do? <laughs> like, that was a conversation they had. And I was like, I'm, I'm having, like, flashbacks to the last gala I helped plan. Oh, my goodness. How – that's cool. I mean, yeah. So what's your husband think about that? He's like, I don't care. Well, he's just like, can you please stop pausing the show to tell me these <laughs> things that I give zero shits about? So it's a great segue even into what we're talking about today. Yes, it is. Brittany, oh. what are we talking about today? We're talking about donor-advised funds, otherwise known as DAFs. So this is um, something we talk about regularly, and this is the first time we are devoting an entire episode to the discussion on DAFs. And uh, it's pretty timely. So part of what brought us to have this conversation is because I had a little Twitter rant that went as viral as anything I do can go. <laughs> like it got retweeted by two people. And so I was like, oh my God, I'm viral. <laughs> <laughs> but it, okay, so um, again, I'll link to this stuff in the show notes so y'all can see it. But the Nonprofit Times recently released one of their podcast episodes 
talking about DAFs because we've gotten some recent uh, reports. And I, I took issue with some of the remarks from the people they interviewed. But I'm going to start us off with the, with the data that we've gotten recently. So basically, we've had three major reports on DAFs released in February. Number one was from Blackbaud. And it showed that giving increased 2%. So from $450 billion to 459 2%. A whole 2%. 2%. Isn't that? That's amazing. <laughs> the second one was from AEI, where they showed that their DAF accounts increased from 112 to $142 billion over two years. Oh, my gosh. Billion. Billion. I just want to make sure people are recognizing that that is a, a B at the beginning of that word. Yes. As I said last time, B like boy. And then number three, Fidelity, they distributed $9 billion. So it's interesting. Like we're getting three different data points from three different entities that are trying to paint this larger picture. So a lot of this is going to be based on assumption. We don't have the full picture. We don't know how much Fidelity had in DAFs to begin with. Right. Nine billion out of how much? We don't right. know. We do. We know a couple of things, though. Um, let me find this one other piece. OK, so we also know that 14 billion was put into Fidelity DAFs in 2020. So they distributed nine, but they brought in 14. But we don't know how much was already there before 2020. Right. We don't know how much was already there. And we know that there's a $5 million delta, sorry, $5 billion delta that is still sitting in them. Yeah, because just to explain to people, when you transfer money into a donor advised fund, there is no time limit to when you can then disperse it. Right. So it could sit for generations. Yes. Potentially. And that is one of the chief complaints. Right. So you could, and I know we talked about this before, so I hope I'm not stealing any thunder that you're about to talk about. <clears throat> you could have someone who says, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to move a ton of my assets into a donor advised fund. I'm going to get the tax break from that. And then it's going to sit there so that my kids, once they grow up, can then use that to gift to different charities of their choosing. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, we probably should have backed up before jumping into the, the numbers to just explain DAFs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of them can be held at these massive firms, Fidelity, Schwab, et cetera, um, where they have billions of dollars in assets that they're – assets under management is what it's called – that they're managing on behalf of these donor advised fund holders. And then the the DAF holders will say, take $1,000 from my fund, send it to this nonprofit. Some of those massive holders will say, yep, no problem. Some have some additional vetting. At the very least, though, they have to ensure that it goes to a 501c3. That's part of the, the tax piece around it. Um, some of them are, are also like your local community foundations. A lot of them will have DAF accounts that they're managing, um, but a, a, a similar process. The, the donor comes forward, says, here's how much to whom. The foundation vets it, says yes, sends out the check. And the donor gets the full tax benefit when they make the contribution. To the fund. Right. 
Right. The initial contribution contribution to the donor advised fund. Right. And so that's, you know, when I, I, we should always say there are some benefits to folks to having donor advised funds. There certainly aren't in my life, but to some people. And one of those would be being able to bunch, you know, a big old donation in one year, put it in your fund, and then be able to spend some time figuring out how to distribute that. Um, so one of the common stories, your your company IPOs, you've got a big windfall, whatever. To reduce your tax liability, you make a bunch of big donations, and then over the next five years, you pay them out to organizations or something. Um, so there's like that tax benefit. And then there's the anonymity for right. better or worse. So yes. as nonprofits, we don't typically get information on who's behind the DAF. Um, some of these big fund managers will allow us to convey um, materials back to the DAF holders. You know, we can send thank you notes, but we never actually get their information or direct contact. Because the exchange with the nonprofit is coming from the the institutions that's holding or managing the funds. Right. And so unless the fund, okay, unless the donor has called me to give me a heads up, hey, mm-hmm. just want you to know I'm making this distribution from my DAF. It's called XYZ. Look for it. Or unless the fund is actually named the person who is giving it. So right. it's coming from the Brittany Wilson Fund. I'm like, oh, Brittany Wilson made a gift to us. We don't know. Right. So I have had to make quite a few phone calls to Schwab or Fidelity and say, hey, we just received this gift. Oh, my gosh, it's so great. But we have no idea who it's from. Mm-hmm. So and how do we thank you? them? No. Of course not. No. That, that's one of the selling points of DAFs is anonymity. Um, and, and I think one of those ongoing stories that we've heard historically, I don't know how true it is anymore, but – you know, if if Brittany Wilson is this wealthy and giving money to all these organizations, others are going to find her and ask for more. I was going to say I have had DAF holders tell me that same thing. Yeah. Where when I've asked them, maybe I knew who it was and I asked them if they wanted to stay anonymous or if we could publicize their gift and, you know, publicly recognize them. And they said, absolutely not, because then every other nonprofit in town is going to be reaching out to me. Right. Um, and that's why also you get a lot of DAFs where that they're named something totally unidentifiable, like the Billy Goat Fund. Right. Like, who, who the fuck is the Billy Goat Fund? We will never know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And for it's like, yeah. Anyways, it's just funny because internally we're constantly trying to track that, you know, and sometimes there's always the like, who's the who's the Billy Goat Fund again? Who is that? And, the, yeah. you know, granted, if you had a nice um, database where that's all connected, then you don't have to think about that on the top of your head. But come on now. That would be nice. Yeah. Um, I think probably the third benefit is that it can also help folks figure out their philanthropic goals and who to fund um you know a lot of times the especially i'm thinking like the community foundation ones the DAF holders will go to them and say i want to fund housing who's doing housing in the community and they'll get a list of local nonprofits that are doing that kind of work i'm sure fidelity and schwab and all of those have some 
something similar, some sort of database they can access um, of all the different organizations, but it can be an, an added tool for philanthropists. So that's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's spend the rest of the time on all the shit of DAFs. <laughs> now, I do want to be clear. There are a lot of really phenomenal DAF holders. So this is not a critique of them. This is a critique of the larger structures at play. Um, so I don't want anybody like feeling ashamed whatsoever if you have a DAF. This is not about you. This is about the systems at play that allow others to take advantage of DAFs. Right. If I know you and I know you have a DAF, that means you're using it. So none of this applies to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> nice disclaimer. So anyway, so this uh, this podcast ran. And OK, so a few of the issues. One of them you already brought up, the time limit. So there there is no time constraint. Theoretically, a DAF could exist in perpetuity. And there are a number of DAF holders who who say, I want this set up so that my kids can continue to give out of it after I pass on. Mm -hmm. Okay, see, the problem is, and part of this is the tax structure in the U.S. So donor Sally Sue, she has a massive windfall. She gives to a DAF, which thereby reduces her tax liability for that right. year. right. And then decides to sit on that money till she passes away and gives it to her kids. Okay, well, society didn't benefit when you got that tax break. That, that's the assumption there, right? Like, that's why we have tax deductions, is that you're using a money that, your money in a way that benefits society, so we're going to reduce your tax liability. But that didn't happen. Your money went and sat in an account, and it's been sitting there for years, for decades, so if you are going to get a tax benefit, thereby reducing the amount of taxes you pay to the government, thereby reducing the amount the government can pay for critical services, you need to distribute those funds now. Mm-hmm. I just got all riled up. Whew. It's early I in know, the episode, I felt too. it. I felt it. I was, I'm digging it. I am picking up what you're putting down. And it just makes me think about, because um, we've had this discussion lately, about funders. Like when somebody, when a grantor gives you money for a specific program, it's for you to use right then. It's right. not, you can't hold on to that grant and decide that you're not going to use it for two years until you might actually need the money. Right. So why should it be any different? Yeah. Well, and that like brings up the whole quagmire of endowments and my very mixed feelings about them right now. <laughs> truth, truth, truth. There are endowments, so it's maybe not the best comparison. But, but yes. I mean, I think your, your sentiment there is right. Yeah. Um, and you bring up, or you brought up earlier, the, the foundation comparison. Mm -hmm. So that that's that's been one of the things that that's been brought up regularly. So private foundations, community foundations, just foundations in general have a 5% spend requirement every year. DAFs don't have that. And so the argument was made in this podcast that well, most foundations actually distribute more than 5% and have a spend over 5%. So that would create this artificial ceiling you would actually see foundation giving go down. 
which, you know, there is some research around like major gifts where that happens. You start saying to board members, okay, your your give minimum is this amount. And so folks will potentially reduce their giving to that amount because it feels like the, the entry point. But I don't think anybody who is having these kind of critiques of DAFs would say that the 5% is even fucking sufficient. I was just going to say that. I mean, that's an issue right there. Yeah, like 5%. None of us are wanting to benchmark to a shitty benchmark. 5% is ridiculous. And especially when it it's it's a spend. It's not necessarily a distribution. So some foundations are hitting that 5% just in paying their CEOs. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's bullshit. Yeah. So, again, here's like the policy side of it. Not only do foundation limits need to be raised, 10, 20, 25%. I'd be fine with all of those. But DAFs need some sort of minimum as well. If they're going to get the tax break, they need to be distributing those funds. Well, yeah. And I mean, why can't it be, why can't there be a starting point and then it's variable depending on, I don't know, what's happening in the world and what the need is at any given time. And maybe there's some sort of matrix that they're using to be able to gauge when need is higher than others. I don't know. But we think so much of this last year with COVID and this real call out for, hey, we need to free up this money because this is when we need it. And there was really no mechanism for that. Right. Right. Well, and here's where like that delta between money going in and money going out, I think, really comes into play. Because the narrative we were hearing all of 2020 is, no, DAFs are distributing. Like, we we are surpassing all prior levels of DAF giving. They are really distributing funds in a way like we've never seen. Well, if that's true, though, then we wouldn't see that kind of number coming out of Fidelity. Well, what was the first number you gave about increase by 2%? Uh, you want me to go back and find my data again? <laughs> um, okay. That was total giving increased by 2%, 450 to $459 billion. That was oh, that's from Blackbaud. That's just giving in general? Yeah. Okay. That's not specific to DAFs. Right. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. And, you know, I think that number will probably change by the time we actually get our Giving USA data from this year, mm-hmm. which I'm so excited to see. Um, but the, like, the point would be, if 2020 was truly a year like none other, we would want to see DAF assets actually decrease. Right. We would want to see that they're actually spending out on, on the whole more than they are bringing in. But the fact of the matter is Fidelity now has more assets under management than they did at the beginning of 2020. Well, and what we really know is that who's benefiting from this? Right. Right? It's the asset manager. It's whoever's holding on to the assets. And I'm not savvy enough to know what that looks like, but I guarantee if they're holding on to huge chunks of money, they're making some percent off of it somewhere. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Well, and here's where, like, the markets aren't the economy kind of dialogue comes into play. Because in 2020, when we saw the economy struggling, the markets generally did pretty well. 
So that also means that those DAFs were probably performing pretty well. Right. So they were also just amassing wealth because they were doing well in how they were playing out. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you is, um, so if I set up a DAF, okay, and let's say I put $20,000 into it, is that money then invested Yeah. by the institution? Yep. It's not just sitting in a bank vault somewhere. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> right. So it's, and then let's say it's doing well, okay? Mm-hmm. Does the increase that comes from it stay within the DAF or is that just paid to the DAF holder? Meaning if I put in 20 grand and let's say it did really well and it increased to 25000 do I now have $25,000 that I can gift out? Or did that $5,000 just go into the pocket of the bank that's holding the DAF? Oh, no, no. It goes into the DAF. Like there, there's okay. some sort of percentage for managing those funds. So the, the fund manager does well when the funds do well. Right. But the... Like the real gains are going back into the DAF. There you go. So, but it could go the other way then too, presumably. Technically, but most, I I mean, this is true of like all assets. If they're being managed, the asset manager is making some minimum fee. Right, but I'm saying, and I'm assuming they're doing a good job and they would not pull them out of things that aren't doing well. But I mean, a DAF could decrease in value, presumably. Oh, yeah, I guess. I That side of things, I am not well-versed on. But yes, presumably. Well, I keep thinking, I mean, the last time we did um, an episode about DAFs, we talked about one of the examples we gave. Oh, goodness. I got to pull back in my memory. Is the owner of, I don't know, Lyft or Uber or one of those big companies who moved a bunch, like the the company went public, let's say, I might be totally making this up, moved all of his, like converted a bunch of stock into a DAF, got this huge, you know, tax deduction for it, but then his stock plummeted. Okay. See, that's what I feel like. And I remember that the, like the, he got this huge windfall of deductions from a value that then changed. So it's kind of like he beat the system. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. I don't know what situation you're talking about, but that's that's totally accurate. I'm going to find out what it is when we put it in the show notes. Okay. Well, and I think probably that the amount of money going into DAFs, going back to the economy in 2020, is really related to those with wealth gaining significant amounts of wealth in a pandemic. So this mm-hmm. is the part that just should feel really icky. Like, uh, so I pulled up um, another set of data. So five U.S.-based billionaires gained over a trillion dollars between March 18 and November 24. So in the six first months of the pandemic, these five men gained a trillion dollars in wealth. Grody. Isn't that awful? And let me tell you, they weren't giving out even half a trillion in philanthropy. No, that's for sure. Yeah. So it's such an interesting thing, a thing when you have these DAFs that are are meant for larger donors. Like most staffs will have some sort of entry point, 25K, whatever, to start the the pot. And so we've created this 
the system, um, actually, and I've got a quote on this, John Arnold, um, who I follow on Twitter, because that's where all good things are right now, he said, DAFs are a tool for tax purposes. Our tax code rewards the commitment to give over the actual act of giving. Yes. <laughs> That's it right there. Yeah. I mean, to have this whole tool that nonprofits generally don't have access to, and yet we know we've got billions and billions of dollars in that is rewarding wealthy folks for putting their money away and not holding them accountable to distribute it. That is a really fucked up tool that we have in our system. Absolutely. Yeah. And all of this money that clearly has been earmarked or presumably has been earmarked for good, just sitting under lock and key when it could be out in the world actually making a difference. Yeah. Can you imagine if, if that $14 billion, just from Fidelity, to be clear, like there are so many different management tools in place. We're just talking about Fidelity. If that $14 billion went directly into nonprofits, what that would have done. I know. And when was this created? When were DAFs created? Like, is there any hope that they'll eventually change? I have no idea when DAFs were created. Um, Just oh. like I didn't know when um, Women's History Month was created. Well, you know what? I just found it. Uh, 1931. Good. What? Okay, so that's fascinating because that is like right after the Great Depression when we similarly saw people with extreme wealth continuing to gather wealth. Right. That is really fucking fascinating. And of course, it was John D. Rockefeller and the New York Community Trust that helped to create that. Huh. Anyway, okay. So this apparently has been an institution around for 90 fucking years. Awesome. Love that. So much easier to dismantle. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, what we've laid out is basically how, how we can start regulating them in a way that makes sense have minimum distributions, have time limits. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you want to put a million dollars in today, you've got five years to spend that down. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. Like, we need to actually have some accountability if we're going to continue to allow this tool. Um, of course, I would love to just, like, fucking get rid of them. That's not going to happen. So then the next best step is just to start enacting accountability measures. Well, and this is going to maybe come off as being a little Pollyanna, but I think that there's an education piece about it oh, to daft donors. Mm. Well, I just think that I think that we could do more. You know, in this podcast, we talk all the time about these different power structures. And we also talk about what role we're playing as the fundraiser or as the nonprofit to enable it, to keep it going. Yeah. And so, I mean, I know that it's not always an appropriate time, but if you really do have good relationships with your donors, you could start talking to them about this. Those that have DAFs. I mean, I doubt they know how many billions of dollars are being held up in DAFs right now. Yeah. And and I think the more that we can do to educate donors on these systems that they're they're kind of helping to create. I, I really do believe that there's quite a few um, donors 
who just mean well, right? And they've been told by their tax advisor, like, this is a great way to do it. You want to be philanthropic? Let's do this. Set up your draft. Oh, no, don't worry about it. You don't have a time limit. You don't have to whatever. And they're just like, oh, okay, that's great. And so how can we help educate them on how that's actually hurting the sector and not helping the sector? Mm -hmm. And this is where I think some of those non-commercial managers come into play. So like, fuck Fidelity, Schwab, all of those. I Like, they're lost causes to me at this point. But where we've got, like, community foundations holding yes. them. Yes. They have a real opportunity. And we did see this a bit in 2020 when they were going to their, their DAF holders and saying, this is a time to distribute. Here's some of the stuff we're seeing. Here are some of the organizations that are playing a real part in ensuring our community gets the services they need. How about you distribute? And it, it it's always an interesting thing because – you know, from that asset management piece, the more that gets distributed, the less that they're managing. So the the less that they are potentially making money on, the less right. that the, their balance sheet shows. So like they're they're actually taking this calculated risk of like I we're going to better the community by encouraging distribution over continuing to amass our own foundation's wealth. Well, you know, since we have this really extensive platform of this podcast. Hey, 150 listeners. <laughs> I'm also going to put a call out because we don't know who's listening. And maybe one of you is a billionaire that we need someone to step up in this space and publicly who owns a DAF, who has a lot of money in it, who steps up as an example to say, look, this isn't right. I am going to commit to giving so much to my DAF every year and distribute it within a year. Well, the last time we really talked about DAFs was about the half my DAF movement. Right. Was the folks who were saying we are we're getting rid of literally half of the assets in our DAF before the end of 2020. And how did that go? We should check back in. That would have been a great thing to have in this episode. <laughs> well, that makes pe- you'll have to listen to next week's episode so that we can't or the week after because we're doing two back to back. Um <laughs> Stay tuned and we'll have an update on that. But yeah, yeah, I felt like that that was making some noise for a little bit and then I haven't heard anything about it anymore. Well, we were trying to make it make noise. I don't know that it did anything. Um, And actually, I'm just like doing some quick Google scrolling right now. I've not seen any news articles since summer. Oh, that's so sad. So I don't think we've got any updates. Um, But I mean, it's a really important thing. Um, they say, it, this is from the Half My Deaf folks, the, the Richer family, that in 2020, Half My Deaf Heroes gave $8.6 million from DAFs in five months, helped by $1.4 million in matching funds because they were going to match anybody who hit right. their, uh, their benchmark of the half. They were going to do some sort of additional give. Um, they say, this year we're going even bigger, aiming to award $20 million to nonprofits, including $3.1 million in matching funds. I'm going to, it's been a long time since I've done a hashtag. I'm going to do hashtag bring back half my DAF. I don't think that the half my DAF people would be appreciative of saying bring back. Well, then let's grow it. I mean, I think it's great what they're doing in their little neck of the woods, you know, but how do we get this to be a bigger movement? Right. I mean, they're definitely leading by example. So we we need some... um, we needed to catch on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is where the donors have a lot of power. Right. Uh, Fidelity can't stop you from distributing half of your DAF. So go fucking do it. 
Well, I can't think of a better way to end this episode than that call to action. (laughs) Well, thanks, folks. We always appreciate you listening. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Nonprofit Reframe. You can always email us, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. If you happen to be a DAF holder who is committing to doing some of these things, let us know. We would love to, to know that the movement's growing. And, you know, I usually end every episode by give and give generously, but I think that's what this whole episode has been about. So call Fidelity and give half your DAF. And if you don't have a DAF, don't ever start one. (laughs) Bye, folks. Bye. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.